on CMO Combo, it's time to turn the page to a new chapter of Story Masters with Gaston Torn. Last time we broke down two of the key aims of the brand stories you tell, defamiliarization and the suspension of disbelief. This time, we're taking a look at the building blocks of a great story, how the greatest literary minds develop story structures and how you too can do the same with your marketing. Ready to take action with act structures? Always wanted to make a scene with your brand stories? Stay tuned as we cover the fundamental structures of great marketing stories. Hi, Gaston. We're back with Story Masters. How are you doing today? Very good. Episode two. I can't wait. I feel like last week we completely lost track of what time it was. And <laughs> it was such an interesting conversation. I'm looking forward to today. Yeah, yeah. That, that, let's think of this as the, well, probably appropriately, the, the second act of the series, because we are talking about story structure today. Um, but before we get into sort of like what story structure means in sort of marketing context, let's sort of establish what we mean by a story structure, because there is sort of like a formal idea behind it in, in literary circles, isn't there? Yes, definitely. I think it's quite interesting because most people, when they think about creativity and in general, like art or literature or fiction, um, I think the common conception is that art doesn't need limitation, that art or fiction or good stories, they don't need a structure. It's almost like, a, you know, if creativity was the opposite of a structure. Um, and that's not entirely true. I mean, for sure, like there is an element of like creativity breaking structures. Um, but for being a disruptor, like if you want to actually break a structure in the first place, there needs to be a certain level of the structure that you're actually actively conscious about and you're trying to disrupt. So um, I feel like, you know, there's a common misconception around creativity or stories lacking structure. I feel like, um, what probably people mean is like actually like there's already a structure in place and great pieces of art what they do is maybe they disrupt part of that structure but it's very very rare for someone to just be able to completely overthrow like years and years and centuries of um, good structures because I think in general like the way that our brain processes stories um, tends to follow some patterns and I think those patterns are the, you know the kind of patterns that have been develop over centuries. And even if you're not aware of them, naturally, when you tell a story, um, you tend to use some of those patterns. And, and it has been talked about for centuries. Sort of this, in fact, probably as long as literary critiques been out there. We've, we've talked about Aristotle a bit in the last episode, but Aristotle really kind of came up with the first idea of a story structure. And I'm going to try and pronounce the Greek terms he used. He used dasis, which means binding or complication is probably the best way of putting it, and lysis, which is unbinding or denouement, as we say in modern terms. And that's basically the conclusion of the story. And to Aristotle, all stories followed that structure. It goes from the binding to the unbinding. You go from the complication to not necessarily the resolution of that complication, but a, some kind of release from that complication, whether it's a good release or a bad release, it doesn't really matter. There's just this binding and unbinding. And that, that structure has been followed for thousands of years. Like you can think of loads of examples that follow that, loads of examples in literature that follow that structure. Yes, completely. I think it goes back to what we discussed last time around stories focusing always on conflict or like there should be an element of change and conflict or tension um, in the story. Um, and I think in the end, it doesn't matter if it's like two acts, three acts, five acts, like different models are going to um, 
you know, call, call those different parts of the story in different ways. And they're also going to have different number um, of um, acts or parts of the story. But in the end, there's always the same kind of elements. At some point, the situation is disrupted. So there is a scene, there is a setting where like the world looks more or less normal. Then something disrupts that order, that normality. Um, and all characters or you know, everything in the story is about trying to go back to that certain level of normality or order. Um, and in the end, it might happen or it might not happen. So it's resolved or it isn't resolved. Um, but that kind of like pattern or structure is very much followed by every story. Um, there might be two acts, three acts, five acts, 10 acts. You might call it like complication. You might call it like confrontation. But in the end, it's referring to the same kind of like elements in the story. And it can work in terms of like the length of the story. It, it doesn't really matter at all. Like a very, very long story can follow this structure in the same way that a very, very short story can follow it. And you can have that structure within the broader story structure as well. So you could have multiple chapters, I suppose, of a story that follow that structure internally that's still part of an overarching narrative. Probably the best examples to think about are maybe uh, trilogies, like film trilogies and stuff like that. Star Wars is a great example of the three-act structure in, in, in action. Uh, Godfather as well. You start with a setup in the first um, in the first chapter of the story. The middle chapter is where all the big chaos happens. Darth Vader cuts off hands. Michael Corleone starts murdering his family. And then the third chapter, that's when you get the resolution. That's when you get the release. You get the consequences of the actions. So you get the, the fall of the Empire in Star Wars. You get Michael Corleone getting his just desserts and seeing his entire family fall apart in Godfather 3. Um, so those are some examples of it in action um, in sort of the the pop culture sense of the word, but how does it work in sort of a marketing perspective? How can you build into the sort of structure um, when it comes to marketing storytelling? And the most important thing is to remember that stories always need to have a certain level of complication or conflict. Um, I think as I mentioned in the end, it doesn't matter how you call those different acts, but there's always a certain element of tension or conflict in order to make the story interesting. And as I said, like it doesn't have anything to do with length. Like I think one of the most beautiful short stories, um, but also quite sad is, is from Hemingway, that famous six word story um, that if you look at it, like even like in, in, in the, the six words, you can see how that story arc or that structure is working. Like, you know, for those of you who don't know it, it it's a very famous story. It looks like, you know, uh, there was a bet um, that told um, Hemingway, like, you're not going to be able to write a story in six words. And I think he took it and he actually wrote a very beautiful story in six words. Um, the story is for sale, baby shoes never worn. Um, and you can see how in that structure, this an initial setting, an initial situation for sale, baby shoes, but then the conflict, the problem comes up, which is never worn, right? And you immediately realize, oh my God, is something wrong here. And that is also the resolution of the story. Um, I think like in, in, in this story, Hemingway doesn't want to go back to a certain level of order or normality. It actually has quite a sad ending, but I think it's, it's a very emotional ending that makes you connect with it. And I think in marketing, probably one of the biggest 
issues I have seen consistently in, in marketing storytelling is that marketeers are not bold enough to explore the conflict. Um, they want to shy away from the conflict. Um, usually most marketing stories tend to be a bit flat, tend to be a bit about like how life is happy and like if you consume this ice cream, you're going to be even happier and everything is like, you know, just like people running through the fields, like just enjoying um, life. Unfortunately, life isn't that happy. And I think actually we watch stories to connect emotionally also with the negative side of life. Because if everything is positive, if everything is amazing, then you cannot really relate um, to how amazing that moment is. I feel like usually you value happiness and you value great moments in life by comparison, by understanding that there are other moments that are actually quite sad and other moments that are not great. And I feel like that's what a good story does. It kind of like makes you feel like everything is lost, but then actually everything can also be recovered and everything can be great again. And I think usually most marketing stories, they feel flat because there is not that arc in the story. It's just usually very much around um, just a great place with everyone being happy and a product that makes people even happier, but there's not enough tension to really raise the stakes. Um, if you look at some of the best adverts that, you know, really have a cultural impact, particularly in the UK, um, for example, the John Lewis ads, they are very different to um, the everyday app, you know, we usually watch on TV. And I feel like that's why they have such a huge cultural impact. They definitely explore the more say the, the you know the, the, not necessarily the sad side of life but they definitely explore some negative emotions that allow you to highlight the positive ending or the positive side of things um, and i think that's why they have such a strong deep cultural connection um with with you know the uk thinking like it's because they allow themselves to explore um the whole arc of a story and in order yeah. to really to really do it i think that you need to really explore the conflict yeah, they're, they're not skipping any stages with the John Lewis ad. Like a standard advertisement for Christmas would be kids under the tree, open up the presents, they're really happy. Oh, that's great. That's just the baseline though. Like if you're going into a story where they're already happy, that just becomes the norm. You haven't seen them reach the point where they needed to get those presents, why those presents mean something to them. And that's what John Lewis does so well like it establishes why these gifts that are available at john lewis mean so much to the people who are receiving them and they do it in really really effective ways that play on very very emotive feelings and often it's presenting those even happy feelings in sort of a negative light it plays a lot on like nostalgia it plays a lot on sort of missed connections with people and then john lewis is a way of rediscovering that joy again rediscovering that connection with other people and yeah they are such cultural touchstones in the UK because people really do engage with the narrative in a really effective way. Like there's loads and loads of other Christmas ads that go out every year and they often do follow that pattern of just being, oh, this is all the great stuff you can have at Christmas, go enjoy it. Whereas John Lewis ones are the ones that get talked about, they get talked about on social media, they get shared with people. People people go out of their way to watch those adverts. People who often have like ad blockers on, don't watch adverts on TV, they stream all their TV. If they hear a John Lewis ad is out, they will go to YouTube and seek it out and watch it, which is a phenomenal thing that you want as an advertiser and the marketer, that people actually want to go out and experience your marketing. Completely. And I think we, because we're in the subject, I have to ask you, like, what's your favorite John Lewis art, like oh my it's definitely a cultural conversation. <laughs> oh, 
Well, my, my favorite one, oh God, my favorite one is actually probably the, the Elton John piano one, if, if I'm yeah. going to be honest. Like, I think it, they told that story really well. And at a time when, I know Elton John did come out of retirement at the time, but he was talking about it being like his final retirement at the time. And you see in this whole arc of this entire beautiful, amazing artist told in a really effective way. And it made you really connect with the idea of like this gift that you give to someone at Christmas could change their entire life in a way that Elton John receiving that piano set him on the path to becoming Elton John at the end of the day. What about you, Gaston? Do you have a favourite? Uh, it's definitely the Elton John one. I think it's <laughs> uh, And I think, again, I think it's beautiful because talking about structures, I mean, we mentioned like a story arc needs to have conflict and needs to have a sense of change. But I think you, you know, two mistakes that usually, as I said, like I see in marketing stories, it's either the ones that have a flat structure so they don't highlight the, the conflict or the ones that do it in a black and white kind of like situation. They have, everything is conflict and then everything is solved very quickly. And then you're like, well, that doesn't seem real, right? Um, because I think like what that journalist app does, it's a very nuanced structure. You can see sometimes going back and forth between that sense of happiness mixed with nostalgia. It's not pure happiness that after. You can actually feel the nostalgia of like, wow, that was an amazing life. At the same time, like that gift that impacted a life, um, it's quite sad to see it like, you know, at the end of his career. So I think like there's a sense of like happiness, but paired with nostalgia. And I feel like that's why it's so emotional because it's not pure happiness. You do feel a bit nostalgic when you finish watching the advert, but you feel great at the same time. There's definitely catharsis. Um, so I think like that's what great stories do. Like they don't just repeat a framework. They try to nuance it a bit and they try to make it very very specific to the story they're you know telling at that point i mean it, it's telling that john lewis i think is honestly the only the christmas ads are the only ads that i've ever heard people talk about willingly and openly that they cry when they see those adverts on tv they they, they people really do emotionally connect to them so to all the people outside the uk listening to this i very much recommend you go and check out their ads um like have a good cry, enjoy the story, and be inspired by the storytelling techniques. Um, but let's let's talk a bit more about sort of like the story structure because we talked a bit about acts. But what are the components of acts? Like, what are scenes? If we're going to keep using sort of like theatre um, terminology, and this is probably the best way of putting it. Yeah. So a scene is really really important in storytelling because scenes are like the atoms of stories it's like the minimum element uh, that really make the story work um so i always start by identifying what's going to be the story arc um and the story arc has three or five acts depending on the structure you're using but what you want to see there is tension and you want to see change but then in order to composed of different acts, you need scenes, which are like just smaller situations that in a way contribute to telling the wider story. I think in the advert that we were talking about, you know, from John Lewis with Elton John, like a scene might be, for example, Elton John as a kid getting a piano um, as a Christmas gift, right? That's just a scene, it's one specific situation. A really interesting book um, from a screenwriter called John York. Um, he was a screenwriter from the BBC. Um, he did an amazing series uh, in the UK called Life on Mars. Um, I think it's a bit of an old one now. Um, <laughs> he has a fascinating book that I recommend everyone reading. Um, it's called Into the Woods, How Stories Work. Um, 
And I think in that book, what he talks about is like, actually the general structure of the story is the same structure that you can see in each element of the story. So each scene in a way repeats the pattern of the general arc or the general story structure. In every scene, what you have is usually tension. Um, it's really, really important to have tension. You watch a story because there is a level of conflict or tension and you watch a scene, a scene captures your attention because there is a certain element of tension. For example, in most romantic films, a scene might be a conversation um, between like a couple, but in that scene, there has to be a certain element of like, you know, tension that might be overt, might be obvious what's going on, or might be very subtle. It might be like, you know, some elements that kind of like allow you to understand that there is a certain element of like conflict or something is not going completely right. Um, so every scene needs to have that tension. Right? It needs to have that element of like, maybe not everything is going right. Maybe there's something that is going wrong. Or maybe if there's two characters, they're kind of like pulling the story to different um, directions. So there has to be always tension. I mean, like, that's what really I see needs to be all about. Whenever I compose a story, I ask myself, who is the dog? I've been going back to what we discussed um, a few weeks ago. Really important that you ask who is going to bring tension to the story. And it's the same exactly in a scene. So if I'm thinking, for example, of a scene and I'm thinking about like a love story, I need to immediately find a dog. Who is gonna make this love story not perfect? Who is actually going to bring some tension or what's gonna bring some tension? Maybe it's like personal insecurities. Maybe it's not someone external. Maybe it's their own internal complex, but there needs to be tension in order to capture people's attention. And again, I would say in most marketing stories, shy away from conflict, shy away from tension. And unfortunately, if you're a conflict avoider, like that's not gonna make your story uh, work. You need to really highlight the tension and the conflict in order to capture people's attention. But that doesn't mean necessarily repeating yourself over and over through scenes. It's, it's having reoccurring themes or maybe having the scenes rhyme rather than repeat is probably a better way of thinking about it. So there's different themes that are coming up over time that are being, approach from different directions but all adding up to the same whole which is this ultimate conflict across the entire story completely yes i mean repetition is not great i think we discussed this um i think in another podcast but i i say you know one of the worst things that i think happening in the marketing world um is when everyone starts to become obsessed with consistency and i feel like most people like think that consistency means repetition Consistency doesn't mean repetition. Consistency, what it means is that you're authentic and you stay true to your values, but you can change what you say. And actually it's more around like staying true to certain values rather than repeating the message over and over again. Um, repeating the message over and over again is what robots do. And actually most people turn off when like, you know, you call one of those call centers that have a robot and no matter what you say, they keep repeating whatever they want. Um, that actually is not a conversation, it's not a story, it doesn't engage you as a human being. What engages you is when the other part of it has certain values that are consistent, but the way they articulate those values and the way they articulate the story is very diverse and actually brings new tones and new themes in every single story they tell. Going back to John Lewis, I think like every single actor has a completely different theme, but you can immediately recognize that it's a John Lewis ad because of the way the story is told. 
and they, they've always got that music as well which is always a dead giveaway of a John Lewis set yeah. always the music um so we talked a lot about conflict and tension which makes it so sound very very negative but it, it, that doesn't necessarily mean that every single story has to be a sad story and angry so, uh, tension and conflict are apparent in in humorous stories in fun stories as well it just means there's something for people to latch onto within a scene or within a story arc as well that they can see that's actually something going to happen if there's no tension nothing's going to happen everything's going to keep going at the same level kind of thing i suppose is a way of thinking about it completely yes i don't think conflict and tension means negativity conflict and tension means going back to like you know we were talking about like scenes being the atoms of like stories then going back to physics it's basically just two forces that are pushing in different directions but that doesn't mean necessarily that it's it's a negative force i think as you said comedy uses tension quite a lot like every single scene from like going back to another uk classic mr bean right <laughs> uh, every single scene has a lot of tension it's either mr bean being sloppy and actually not managing to do something that is quite obvious and quite like everyday, but basically it's bringing back that kind of like sense of like absurdity to everyday life. And that's the tension, right? Like this is still tension because he's a sloppy or because he doesn't follow everyday uh, conventions. Um, but it's funny to watch. It's not sad to watch like Mr. Bean's tension, but without that tension, you wouldn't be watching it. If, if anything, Mr. Bean, is the tension that gets introduced to the scene like he, he he's not he is the 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 spark that actually drives the, the the situation forwards within the scene um but then mr bean's an established character he's got kind of expectations that go with it when uh, particularly british people watch it when mr bean enters a scene you know he's going to do something silly you know he's going to mess something up so part of that tension is you waiting for that to happen that expectation is already there what about when you're introducing a new character and you want to build these expectations up? Like, how can you do that across a story arc that might be quite short in a marketing sense? Like, your average advert isn't going to run for a half-hour episode where you can build up, like, characters and stuff like that. How do you do that within a very short space of time in marketing? And we're, we're talking a lot about sort of advertisements as well, but this applies to written content as well, I suppose. Like, how do you sort of introduce characters and give them space to breathe and get the connections within the story arc. So I think a really good example, like quite a recent one, is, is Polyform's campaign um, that is called One Stories. I'm not sure if you watch it, um, but I thought it was a really beautiful um, campaign and particularly their campaign video, like the hero created, they, they did. I think it was very beautiful because it brought back the tension of, um, you know, what women experience when they have a period, right? I think usually, uh, most of our time saying um, in that category tries to show again perfection tries to show like just women like solving um, their body pain uh, in an unrealistic way right it's almost like you know we are all kind of like very quite familiar with with those ads that you know show like the perfect man like waking up like just having like an incredible makeup already yeah Yes, make already incredible record. And like, that's not reality. I mean, like, we know how it's like the morning of like any, um, you know, working person. And especially like if your body, um, so woman is like going through um, such a hormonal change, like for sure, you're not going to be like at your best. And I feel like what body form did in that effort is like really touching on that tension, like, you know, the tension of your body 
not agreeing with you know who you are outside and like it's done in a very beautiful way because it's kind of like a mix of like real um scenes of like actual women with some drawings that you know show kind of like what's going on inside the body and i think like that kind of like tension between like reality versus like feelings and imagination which is a thing is like done very beautifully like in the in the actual advert like by having like drawings versus real images so that tension even like in a visual level i think brings back um the you know the original kind of like conflict we were talking about so it's not necessarily negativity it's not necessarily using like a famous character but it's using the tension between the reality of what's going on outside and what people see versus what's going inside you know in your body and i think like it's done in a very subtle beautiful way um i think it's a really good example of how to um bring tension at a scene level so in a micro level but then the whole advert in itself um just like keeping you super engaged because of um, the way it's structured. Uh, it is a great example. And I think it's something that speaks to sort of an evolution of advertising aimed at women as a whole. Like, I feel for a long time, a lot of advertising aimed at women or about women focused products. They didn't show this kind of like tension in a realistic way. It was always shown in either a very cartoonish way, something out of like a, like a very like cheesy rom-com where the girl the the woman's got not very realistic problems that they've got to overcome throughout the day or they don't show those problems at all um it was only very recently that women's rays actually showed actual hairs being trimmed on screen and adverts for a long time women in these adverts were shaving already shaved legs which is just absurd like they're not showing any kind of resolution, not showing any kind of conflict in that person's life. If they've already got smooth legs, why do they need to buy razors? Why do they need to shave their legs? So I think, yeah, it's it's really great to see more and more women-focused ads actually focusing on the problems that women actually face. They're actually being realistic. And I think that's partly because there's more women actually involved in the development of these adverts as well. Like, we can't ignore that factor. Yeah, and I feel like it's, it's really touching as well on like the vulnerability of like every human being. And I feel like it's not just like women ads. I feel like the same with like, I feel like a lot of like ads um, targeting men, like again, they show like, you know, you know, the guys going to the pub with having like a beer and like a laugh. And like, it was always like really, really superficial, right? And I feel like some recent ads, um, again, bring back that tension of like, you know, for example, what does it mean um, to, to be a man like in a, in a society that has like really high expectations for you. And I feel like there's also a lot of pressure, right? Like um, if you look at like mental health issues um, for men, I think like it's, it's, it's really, really high. Like I think like you know, we all know like some of the stats that, you know, how, how the same system that um, you know, doesn't portray women in a fair way also affects um, the way that a lot of men feel. Um, and again, like for example, like another beautiful uh, campaign that tries to portray um, you know, how these tensions happen, you know, every day, uh, in everyday life, particularly for men, it's, it's from acts. I'm not sure if you, if you watch um, um, this, this campaign idea that is called, is it okay for guys? Um, mm -hmm. It was a very beautiful campaign. I feel like in the UK it was launched with links rather than acts. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and the campaign is basically focused on like the most important search queries um, that men ask to Google. So usually when we ask Google questions, like 
nobody's watching, right? So we tend to be quite authentic. And it's fascinating to see what usually male users ask Google. Like, for example, like some of the questions is like, is it okay for guys to cry? Is it okay for guys to wear makeup? Is it okay for guys to like other guys? Um, so all the questions that usually, you know, you won't be able to ask um, openly because they're still taboo. Um, this app where what it does is like, it brings it back to um, just a video that shows you like what it is to experience being a man like in a society um, that is all the time putting pressure uh, on you. Um, and again, it's another example of like bringing tension without necessarily exploring a negative side of uh, humanity. It's more like, you know, I think that there's tension because definitely there's always um, some level of like expectations that people put on you uh, that doesn't necessarily agree with you. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's negative. It's more like you're trying to battle your own identity. Um, and I think that advertising, great advertising, what it does, it captures that feeling. It captures that tension between who you are um, and what people expect from you and tries to bring a bit more freedom and tries to tell people like you actually can build your own path. To, to some extent, the audience is almost bringing their own tension to these situations, their own sort of awareness of the world around them sort of builds that tension already, which allows these ads to be that release. So I suppose if you're tapping into a broad enough issue that people are facing, then that tension building is already done. And then it's all about you kind of building on a resolution to that, showing the confrontation stage and then the resolution. So the tension is kind of already built up through audience empathy almost. Completely. Yes. And I think particularly some of the most beautiful actors, what they do is they talk about internal tensions. And as I said, those internal tensions, we all experience them, but we sometimes not, are not able to, to talk about them openly. Um, so I've been like the ads that are really um, fostering new dialogues in society are the ones that bring back to the public discourse and the public discussion, things that we all experience uh, personally, um, but perhaps we don't discuss um, in, in a public forum. And I think like a lot of us, what they're trying to do now is just really disrupt the public conversation by you know, bringing that internal tension to the outside world. And, and, and that's what great stories do as a whole. They start these conversations, they cause people to look at the world in a different way. We talked about this in the, the last episode, didn't we, about making people look at the world in a different way. And that's why something that even though it has a structure to it can still spark new directions and new ways of thinking. Like um, when you were talking earlier about um, like why stories need structure, I think probably the biggest difference for me between unstructured storytelling and structured storytelling is when people start talking about their dreams. When they, they, everyone's been in that situation where you hear another person start talking about their dreams and it's really boring because there's no structure to the story and it means you've got nothing to latch on to in a real empathetic way but if they have a narrative to tell like if i'm sure everyone's got a friend they love to sit in a bar with them and sit in a pub with them and hear them tell just like the story of their day because they can tell it in such an effective interesting way and they often tell it in a structured way they say this happened then this happened because of that and i think that is the big difference between why we need structure and story and why it's not a restriction on creativity. It's a way of framing creativity for me. Agree. I love um, this quote from Chesterton. Um, he says, art consists of limitation. The most beautiful part of every picture is the frame. Um, and I think it's, it's because nobody wants to see an outpouring of emotion without any kind of like limitation to it. Actually, 
going back to your example, when you go to the pub and the friend is telling you the story, good storytellers, what they do is they hold attention. Like they're always like, yes, and then these happens. And then you're like, what, what happened? Like, tell me. And like, they will like always hold a bit that tension, like until like there's a moment of like catharsis. But in order to get to that moment of catharsis, I think what a good structure means is enough emotional build up, right? Like you cannot like just release the tension immediately because then there is no real emotional release, right? So all those tactics and all those techniques, they have been perfected over time um, because, you know, it's the way that we process emotions and it's the ways that we process um, stories. Some stories will consciously try to disrupt those structures. Like there's a very famous like, um, theatrical school that, for example, what they do is like they try to remove completely the catharsis uh, from every story. Um, and it's very disruptive, right? Because suddenly you have all this emotional buildup and the play finishes. And you're like, where's the ending? But I think like they do it in a very conscious way. So again, of course you can disrupt structures. I think like creativity is always about um, disrupting what has already been said and, and what has already been done. But in order to do that, you need to know what has already been said and done because if not, you're just going to be doing something that is going to be probably mediocre or like someone else has already done it. So I think like, um, doesn't mean that you have to follow the structure 100%, but you need to know it in order to disrupt it and do something creative. For sure, for sure. So when it comes to knowing the structure and putting it into practice, let's, let's talk about a kind of a process that people can follow. Like how, how, do you, how do you go through the stages of working out your story arc? What are the acts within it? And what are the scenes that go into it? Like, how would you approach that? Do you go from the bottom up? Do you go from the top down? Or is it, do you go from like different parts when you're approaching it? Like where, what's your approach to developing a story arc, Gaston? So I have two different approaches. Like I said, one is bottom up, the other one is more like top down. So it really depends on like the story. Sometimes I'm fascinated with like one detail. Um, you know, just when we talk about this specific um, story that, you know, I told in my role at Appear here, um, Steve's story, um, someone who, um, managed to launch his own restaurant um, even like you know if like certain years ago like he was sleeping on the streets in, in South London um, it's a really beautiful story that like gives you hope and shows you like um, how talent can basically lead you anywhere no matter where you come from but that story started with a detail for example it didn't start with a clear story structure I was just like fascinated by how much Steve loved um, to know about like the produce that you know he was using in his restaurant. He's obsessed with like making sure like every single fish and lobster and whatever like produce he's using in the restaurant is amazing. Like he you can see the passion he has for like the food he's cooking. Um, and I think it started with that detail. And then from there I went into the structure. Whereas other stories are more easily like you just start, you know, this is the structure, these are the different acts. Now let's build the details. I think good stories need both like they need a clear structure but at the same time they need enough details that make the story unique details are actually what makes you like smile like what makes you like oh god i can really relate to it if it's just pure structure there's not going to be a lot of emotion but i think if there is enough um details that kind of complement that structure that make the story unique um it immediately makes you relate to it so usually what i do is like no matter if i start from details or if i start from um the, the structure at a certain point when I'm working with like the videographer, with the copywriters, like with whoever else is in your creative team, I do have a story arc 
um, for the specific story I'm telling. So I will have literally like just a curve that goes up and down and it will be like at this moment, this is what we're telling. Then this builds up some tension. This is the climax of the story and this is gonna be the resolution. So we're all on the same page about what's the overall um, structure of the story and how we're gonna be building up tension. Of course, then you stay flexible, right? When you are editing the video, when you're like editing the copy, um, you just see what feels right. But having that initial structure, that initial diagram really helps you to make sure like, first of all, you have tension. And secondly, everyone's on the same page around what's gonna be that tension about? Because that tension, the most important element of the story needs to be a key message that you wanna convey as a marketeer. Um, so that's what I tend to do whenever I start the creative process. But then I stay flexible depending on visuals that excite me or like maybe something that the real character said um, that wasn't in my original story, but then actually it really, really um, gives a lot of flavor to, to the story. And I suppose as well, you've got to be flexible because you're not just creating the story by yourself. You're working with a team as well. So you've got to be open to all these new ideas. I think that's why it's important to sort of have some kind of visualization of this story arc. Uh, but at least when you're in sort of like the brainstorming phase, like break out the whiteboard, get out the pens, work out the arc, and then work out the components that go underneath it as a, as a team, as a collaborative effort as well. Completely. And I think like always raise the stakes, increase the tension. Um, I think we tend to, in business particularly, I think we tend to tell very vanilla stories. Um, and just like, I mean, like, that's, that's usually the biggest mistake I see in, in marketing or business storytelling. We don't add enough conflict. We shy away from conflict. Even I would say in internal presentations, whenever my team is presenting something to um, the rest of the senior leadership team, I ask them as well, like, who is the dog of your presentation? You're just presenting me numbers, but those numbers are not going to keep the rest of the senior leadership team engaged. You need to start with like, why they should care. Like, you know, don't say like, at the end of your presentation, like we're losing 40% of revenues because we're not able to, um, for example, I know we're not able to capture all customer calls. Like start with that, start with like, do you know that our business is half the size like it could be because we're not delivering great service? That captures my attention. You're starting with tension. And then explain me how you're gonna fix it. But don't start with how you're gonna fix it. And then at the end, tell me why it's important. That's another big issue. I would say not necessarily a marketing storytelling, but business storytelling in general. Inside our businesses, we tend to focus a lot on processes and how was actually the why and like making sure that why is a conflict, is something that is not necessarily going well, is clearly outlined before you present your solution. Um, that's something that, again, is going to make your work more impactful because other people are going to be interested in fixing it. Uh, I think that's particularly important when it comes to the marketing function. Um, we tend to get bogged down way too much in sort of vanity metrics and stuff that isn't important to other people to other departments even. And that's why being able to construct a narrative around the metrics that we're looking at is important. Being able to explain why these things are important. Why is it important that engagement's gone up on social media by 20%? Like, what is the what, what is the actual benefit behind that? What is the reason behind we should invest more money into social media as a result? Um, so being able to tell those stories internally is important. I'm not saying you need to sit down and write an entire novel around your monthly reporting stats every, every time you're doing your, your reports, but coming up with a narrative behind why things are going in the right direction, why things aren't going in the right direction is incredibly important as a marketer, as a CMO, as a, as a leader.
for sure. Completely. Yeah. I think like whenever I review uh, a deck or an internal document, my first question is like, what's the headline? And I want to see tension in that headline. Because if, if the headline is just basically a description of the numbers or a description of what's going on, people are not going to act on it. Like there needs to be a certain element of conflict or something that you're going to fix in order to keep people engaged um, internally. So definitely like, you know, marketeers, we obsess about influencing people outside of our companies. And I think that's what, what our job is all about. But we need to have the same rigor when it comes to internal storytelling, because if not, we're always going to be the coloring department. I think like if you really want to be a an, really, really important contributor to the success of a company, you need to show what kind of problems you're solving. As you said, like social engagement, what does it mean? Like what, so, what problem are we solving for the company by increasing social engagement? Because in itself, no one's going to care about that metric. They, they might not even know what it means even. Like it's such like a broad term, social engagement, but it's one that we throw around a lot as marketers. Um, but at the end of the day as well, we're not just the only people telling a story within the company as well. Being a good storyteller as a marketer, I think it's something we talked about maybe on the first ever podcast we recorded together, Gaston. It's helping other people tell that story along with you. It's getting other people engaged with the story that you're trying to tell in an effective way. Getting other departments aligned behind the campaigns that you want to run. Being an effective storyteller means bringing all these different people into the fold and getting them excited about telling that story with you. Completely. Yes, I think... Um, marketing is, is probably the team that focuses on like highlighting the most beautiful stories and like the most interesting and captivating stories, particularly connected to your customers. I think like that's in the end, like what marketing stories should focus on. It's not necessarily you as a brand, it's more like how your customers, how your users engage with, with your brand. Um, I think like talking about story structure, another really important framework is, is knowing who is the character, who's the antagonist, and who they are. Like, I know we're going to be talking about that in, a, in the next episode, or like one of the next episodes. I'm not going to like disclose too much, uh, but it's really important that the customer and the user is always the protagonist um, of the story. And I think the marketing team is the one that's going to be telling those stories, but you cannot do it alone. Like, you need the product team to tell you like, what are some of, of you know, who are some of those users that are perhaps using the app or like the product that, that you're working on in a very interesting way? And you need a commercial team to also connect you with some of your customers. And all of them need to feel engaged and understand the impact that your product has um, in the real world. So you cannot do it alone. The one who is like highlighting maybe some of those important moments and like you're kind of reinforcing the impact that your product or service has in the world. Um, but the other teams need to feel the same passion. Um, and I think like, you know, that's, that's kind of like your role, I would say, internally. It's really um, evangelizing people about why your product exists and, and what's the impact it has more broadly beyond just providing a service. That's great. Note to end on there, Gaston. Um, and you've also given us a nice little handy preview of an upcoming episode. We are going to be digging into the, the murky waters of protagonists and antagonists and what that means for your your marketing in a future episode. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation um, as I do every time we speak, Gaston. I, as I've said before, uh, storytelling, it's one of my favorite things to talk about marketing and story structure as well. It's always something fascinating to dig into because you see these story structures once you once you know what they are you recognize them all the time and i think that's probably the best thing i can say to our listeners to do like start thinking about the stories that you you watch or you read 
and how they fit into this structure. And they'll help you think about how you're telling your stories in different ways as well, how you're working them into structures. You don't necessarily have to go out and read loads of screenwriting books, like, although I would recommend it if you want to be a great storyteller, but just start paying attention to the actual stories you're absorbing. Um, that's probably my main piece of advice here. Completely. And if you want to be a disruptor and you don't believe in structures, um, still like watch those stories, try to understand their structures because you're not going to be able to disrupt anything unless you know what is already the norm. So still hold that revolutionary act that, you know, you want to like disrupt storytelling and you, if you don't believe in like stories having structures, like believe in that, but first get to know what structures are out there because you're not going to be able to disrupt anything unless you know what is already the convention. And in the end, you're going to find that you're not going to be able to like completely fully disrupt um, the story arc. You're only going to be disrupting certain elements of it. And I think that's what great storytelling does. Keeps the convention for 90% and then disrupts 10% to keep things fresh. Keeping things fresh. That's what we need to do as marketers. Thank you very much for speaking to us today, uh, Gaston. Really appreciate it as always. And I'm sure our audiences appreciate it as well. Thank you, Will. Uh, we'll be back soon with another Story Masters from CMO Diaries. Like what you heard from this CMO combo? Make sure you hit that subscribe button and leave a rating so the whole world knows how great it was.